0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: I assume, I'm hoping that you have been following this story today. Hopefully you caught a bit of it this morning on Bill Kelly. If not, you're going to catch up right now. But last night, don't know exactly what time it was, but last night, Mayor Fred Eisenberger sent out a tweet that had a photo attached to it of a bunch of ambulances sitting out front of Hamilton General Hospital. And the tweet said this, I am at the general with a friend for care, and there are eight ambulances and 16 Paramedics waiting for hours to offload patients. I'm told this is normal. Another seven ambulances waiting at St. Joe's. Mind-boggling problem that must be fixed. And he sent that tweet and directed it to Rob McIsaac, who's the head of Hamilton Health Sciences, and Kathleen Wynne, who I'm sure you know who that is. Well, if this is the problem as described, and it sounds like it certainly is, there must be a reason for this to be a problem. The mayor again, on Bill's show and through his other comments, because he followed that up with a number of different and other Twitter posts. The mayor has outlined that it exists. Why does it exist? Mike Sanderson is Hamilton's chief of emergency services. Uh, He joins me now. Mike, thanks for doing this tonight. Appreciate the call, Scott. Thanks for inviting me. I know you don't want to talk specifically about the mayor's comments. You don't want to get into a a thing with that. But we do want to talk about the issue, and that is the launching point. So the only thing I'll ask you specifically about his comment as we get into this, is he correct?
2: Well, He's absolutely correct in that this is a a situation that's very challenging for our our public in Hamilton. It's very challenging for our paramedics, our entire system. Uh, We continue to have ongoing offload pressures at, at the hospitals. Uh, an inability to end up freeing our crews from the hospitals, and that puts us into a situation where we do not have ambulances available to respond in the city, and, and that's just uh, an unacceptable situation. Uh, so the mayor is absolutely correct. It continues to happen. I'm glad that he's very much aware of it. I know that uh, I've communicated those issues with council many times in the process, perhaps not as uh, vociferously as I should have, uh, but I do try to make sure that they're aware of the situation and uh, we continue to work on them
1: why does it happen then if we know that it happens why does it still happen well it's a very episodic type process scott the the
2: the challenge is it's it's not about the number of ambulances that we have on the road and it's not so much although that's a challenge sometimes in in just the the actual call volume it's about patient flow through the hospitals an emergency department is an area that receives patients uh, obviously they get triaged in the process and when those patients are going to be admitted to hospital uh, often There's a delay in being able to get the patient out of the emergency department and up onto the floors in the hospital. And, of course, the floors in the hospital have then delays getting patients discharged from hospital to potentially alternative level of care areas, such as long-term care homes, nursing homes, transitional care homes. So you get a bottleneck. The bottleneck isn't so much in in the emergency department. The bottleneck is in the actual flow of patients into the hospital. There's a lot of minor issues that can be involved, for example, cleaning of beds and ordering services and, and those types of things. But the primary issue is about patient flow into the hospital from the emergency department and then out of the emergency or out of the hospital into the community.
1: Okay. So, and that's clear. And I, I certainly understand that. But at the same time, I think the obvious question that follows is if I were to take, if I'm an ambulance attendant, if I'm a paramedic and I take a patient to the hospital they are now presumably in the best possible place for them health-wise. The doctors are there, the equipment is there. Why could the ambulance attendants, why could the paramedics not drop the patient at the hospital, allow them to be now under the roof of the hospital with all that there, and then leave and carry on and go back onto the road? That's actually just such an obvious question that I I know a lot of people ask that question.
2: So uh, the, the limiting challenge on that is, In accordance with uh, the Ministry's standards of care for our paramedics, they're not allowed to leave the patient until the hospital accepts transfer of care from the paramedics. In, In a legal responsibility and in a regulatory framework, if the paramedics were to do that, they'd be considered to have abandoned the patient because the hospital has not yet accepted
1: care. But could the hospital, could we not set it up so they they could take the person? And if it's a crucial, I mean, I assume if it's life-threatening, they're going to be rushed in anyway. The triage is going to put them in first. And if they can wait a while, they can be cared for in the hospital. And the ambulance attendants then haven't abandoned them. They've been passed off to the hospital people.
2: Uh, That would be our interpretation of it. And certainly many of the public would interpret it that way. That's not being the Ministry of Health's interpretation on that. It's it's considered that we have to have a transfer of care to the hospital. And it is sometimes more challenging than just leaving the patient because obviously many of these patients, uh, some are not on stretchers, some are ambulatory, and they're able to be diverted to the waiting room, and hospitals actually do a fairly good job of doing that. But a patient that's on a stretcher can't just be left on our stretcher and us leave the hospital because we still have to respond to another call. We need that stretcher. Of course. No, of course. So 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 the the, the challenge is we have to end up having a bed in the hospital in order to put the patient on that bed, and all of those beds beds are actually occupied
1: not to be i'm honestly not trying to be sarcastic or facetious but could we not just buy a whole bunch more stretchers just for the triage to be able to leave people there and i know that's not your call that's the ministry's call i understand but that would seem to me to make a lot of sense certainly that could be done that that is an an option
2: uh buying additional stretchers uh and and leaving the patients on our stretchers and just picking up a new stretcher to come back later Uh, but again we still get into the problem of actually transferring care to the hospital and having the hospital accept responsibility for the patient.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: You've heard the discussion today. I'm sure you followed the story that Mayor Fred Eisenberger tweeted out about the backup of ambulances and paramedics dropping patients off or continuing our conversation with Mike Sanderson, the Chief of Emergency Services for the city. And, and Mike, a code zero, as I understand it, please tell me where I get this wrong, is a situation where there is either one or zero ambulances available on the streets of Hamilton at any time. Is that correct?
2: That's absolutely correct. uh, That's a measure that we use on it. It's uh, zero or one. We're covering 1,100 square kilometers and about 67,000, 68,000 911 events a year. Uh, I could also add for you, Scott, that we're actually currently in a code zero right now.
1: Oh, uh, and that's so reassuring. Of course, my tongue firmly planted in my cheek, but it really is. I mean, and that's number what, 32 for this year now? That's number 32 for this year. Uh, right now I have
2: 19 ambulances at hospital. Eight of them are longer than two hours. And we have calls on the board that we're trying to get to. How,
1: by the way, how long must you be with one or zero for it to be counted as a code zero, or is it one second of that, and we count it as a code zero?
2: Once we end up hitting the level of one vehicle or less, uh, we we trigger ourselves into a code zero. We need to get back up above the level of or up to the level of four vehicles before we come out of the code zero event.
1: So, people listening, and, and maybe some people have heard an answer before. I don't know, but the obvious answer to this is I'm. You've got a code zero right now. Somebody in the city of Hamilton suffers a heart attack and their wife or husband calls and says, I need an ambulance. What happens?
2: That'll be one of the highest priority calls. Uh, we'll assign a vehicle to that as quickly as it can be done. Uh, that, th- there's usually the ability to clear a vehicle from the hospital. Uh, we'll end up dispatching a single-person response unit if it's available in the area. Obviously, a, a heart attack or chest pain problem normally requires a fire department response, so we at least have some trained responders that provide first aid, oxygen, and potential defibrillation, uh, should that be required. And of course, the Ministry-Operated Dispatch Centre would dispatch the next closest available vehicle, which is where we rely very heavily on our neighbouring services, particularly in Halton, Niagara, and Haldeman.
1: But there are also, uh, surely it's, I mean, there are horrendous things, car accidents that require two or three ambulances, perhaps, or other things. I mean, are there situations that you look at and you say, it's just, it it can't be done? Or is it a case where you say, well, we have to do it. We just don't know how to do it.
2: We we always have to do it. We have to respond when the call comes in. Uh, The emergency is there and we have to respond with the best resources that we can. The, the, The challenge for me, it's We're always concerned about the life-threatening emergencies, but the other part is the patients that are suffering non-life-threatening emergencies, and examples I would use on that is, you know, an elderly lady that we had last week that had fallen, had a potentially fractured hip laying on the floor, and it's not a life-threatening emergency, but she waited more than an hour to get an ambulance, and those are the patients, it's unacceptable, the emergencies and the the non-emergency calls.
1: Do we know if there have been people in this city who have died because an ambulance couldn't get there fast enough, especially for things like a heart attack or something else?
2: Uh, We're not aware of any currently. There was an allegation that one happened last summer, and that's currently in the coroner's office.
1: There was some, I believe, some money put forward by city council not that long ago to add an extra ambulance and and some extra staff uh, to make sure that this was happening less, but uh, uh, correct me again if I'm wrong on that one, but obviously it hasn't resolved the problem. It, it's just, it's maybe put a tiny dent into it, but it hasn't fixed anything. It has put
2: a tiny dent into it. And, and I have to really recognize council's efforts in this regard. Uh, in the last four years, council has added five ambulances to our resources 24-7. Uh, they've really moved forward in the process. We've had several reports identifying both call volume challenges with our call volumes increasing on an annual basis, about 5% a year as well as the challenge of offload delays. And I have to say, I mean, the offload delays at the hospitals two years ago had actually been moving very much in the right direction. Uh, They were decreasing, it was improving our service performance, and we were not nearly as challenged. Last year, we went up to 117 code zero events again for the entire year. It was double what it was the year before. So now we're heading in the wrong direction. What changed? Uh, the volume of patients in the hospitals and the emergency departments, and I think to some extent the level of acuity in the hospitals uh, that they're looking at after within the hospital system.
1: And I'm guessing that because we're an aging population, there's no reason to think that there's going to be fewer calls going forward. We're gonna, we would expect the calls are going to be the same or higher. Absolutely. Are there any other cities, by the way, that deal with this same kind of thing? Are we unique?
2: Well, I think that we have the most significant problem from all of the peer comparators that I talked to. Other cities do report Code Zero events. Uh, I'm familiar with them in Ottawa. I'm familiar in London, Middlesex. Uh, certainly they've happened uh, in other areas. Toronto has that happened very infrequently. Uh, but our hospitals and, and our coverage area is probably the, the most challenging one in the province in terms of the impact.
1: And who's responsible? The city has put money into this, but is health is a provincial responsibility, correct? That's correct. So this would be a provincial thing, a provincial responsibility to look at this and try and fix it.
2: Yeah. And, and realistically, the the province did end up doing a task force on it as far back as 2007. They've established the standards for transfer of care. Uh, 90% of the time the patients are supposed to be offloaded within 30 minutes of arrival at the hospital. Now uh, that's a standard that's put into place. The province does fund offload nurses uh, through the ambulance service. We provide 24 hours a day of offload nurse funding to the hospitals, uh, every year about 1.3 million dollars in terms of staffing costs uh, to help assist in mitigating the offload delays but as you can see from the situation that we have right now that's not solving the problem
1: no clearly not and and i wish we had a lot more time to talk about this but i do I, i i do have to wonder if this was going on in downtown toronto or somewhere else where so much of the provincial government is and so much attention is if this thing would be allowed to carry on. And I won't put you on the spot to say that. I will. Uh, it, just, it seems ridiculous that we're talking about this again and again and again and that nothing at this point seems to be resolved. However, my, it, I've got five seconds. Do you have any idea what kind of money would be involved to actually fix this?
2: I don't know what it would cost in terms of the hospital end. Uh, I can tell you that uh, in terms of putting more ambulances on the road, it would be extremely expensive. Uh, yeah, that could be costed. But uh, it really needs to be solved at the hospital end. Put more, put more ambulances on the road, it doesn't solve the root cause of the problem, and that's the flow of the patients through the hospital.
1: Mike Sanderson, Chief of Emergency Services for the City of Hamilton. Really appreciate taking the call and doing this tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Scott.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Twitter is not exactly a foreign thing these days. So most of you I'm talking, I'm preaching to the choir here, most of you understand Twitter. You understand how it works. You write something, you put it on Twitter, you send it out to whomever. They decide, they read it, they decide if they're intrigued by what you say, and maybe more than once they're going to follow you, and vice versa. And in time, by doing this, you may gather on your Twitter account a fair number of followers. Some celebrities have millions. Other people, it's a bit of a struggle. Some people have fewer than 100. But there is a twist to this pursuit of followers. An interesting, weird kind of twist that I have just learned about. Maybe I'm behind on this one. Maybe you know about this. It's the idea of buying followers. Buying followers numbers to put under followers. These people uh, may be real people. They might not be real, but people don't know that. They just see that you have tons and tons and tons of people following you. And that, I guess, makes you important. Just today, a story is out. The Chicago Sun-Times has suspended its film critic, Richard Roper, because he is accused of buying Twitter followers for his Twitter handle. It is very weird. It's a puzzling concept. And again, I think there's a lot of people who would hear this and say, well, what's the point? Well, I know just the person who can maybe explain that to us. Martin Waxman is a digital and social media expert who owns and operates Martin Waxman Communications, aptly named. Uh, He joins me now. Martin, (laughs) thanks for doing this tonight.
3: Well, thanks for uh, having me. And really, I thought I was here to sell you followers. No, just kidding.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't even... Here's the thing. It's kind of, to me, like buying drugs in a sense. I don't even know where you would go to find the stuff. But we'll get to that in a minute. Because it is... To me, this is a very weird, very shady, very curious part of this whole Twitter process. Um, Why would I want to spend money and presumably, I'm guessing, significant money, why would I want to spend money to suddenly have people following me who may not even be real? What's the point?
3: Well, first of all, you shouldn't do that. I mean, you just shouldn't do that in the same way you shouldn't lie to people because essentially it's a lie. I, I equate it to you know, some people who buy knockoff brands, and especially the ones with the labels, because it makes them appear something Uh, other than what they actually are. So it's a way of saying, hey, I'm bigger, I'm better, but it really isn't true. And the whole point of social media is you want to be social, you want to engage with people, have conversations, and and be yourself, and hopefully you say enough interesting things that they follow you anyway.
1: (laughs) But what's really puzzling about this to me, and what made me laugh when I first was reading about this, it's one thing to find... Let's say you're buying 50,000 Twitter followers. If I find 50,000 people who actually exist out there, and without them really knowing, you've hacked into their account and forced their accounts onto my feed. So at least there are actual people seeing what I'm writing. Still not right, but I kind of get it. We're talking in a lot of cases about shell accounts. These aren't even real people. These are uh, made-up personalities, I guess, or something. I'm not even sure what it is. You're not even talking now to real people
3: no you're not and in fact a lot of times they're bots, so they're just like programs that are there to follow you in hopes that you would follow them back and then uh, they start retweeting things uh from people who have paid for them so they're not even real the new york times i mean you mentioned uh, the chicago tribune new york times had a great cover story uh or front page story on the weekend about it and about this company called devumi that sells followers. I hadn't heard of them before. I did check out their website, and I noticed that their Twitter feed has been suspended. So clearly, Twitter took that New York Times piece to heart. It, it, it's, it's one of those things where you're buying these fake, and in many cases, um, just bot-operated or computer-operated accounts just to appear as if you have more influence, you're more credible, Mm. you're more popular.
1: Is that what it is? Because I I couldn't figure out if this was simply an ego thing or if there actually is potentially a financial benefit to you.
3: I think it is an ego thing, and I think there also can be a financial benefit. um, Or certainly, you know, if you're an online influencer and you get paid based on the number of so-called followers you have. Now, hopefully... Brands are smart enough and organizations are smart enough to know if you're working with an influencer, maybe it's better to work with someone who has 10,000 or 15 or 20,000, but who has great engagement versus someone who has a million and gets, you know, very few retweets from them or a million followers uh, that have ridiculous proportions. And there, there are ways to spot fakes you know, if
1: they do follow. How do you? I, I, yeah, how do you do that? How do you know? I mean now, l- let me stop for one second. I have at times, and I know I'm not alone in this because in my office I've heard a bunch of people and elsewhere. I had never heard of the phrase porn bots, but all of a sudden you get someone who likes something that you said and you click on, oh, who's that person? And you realize, no, that's not a, <laughs> that's not a person who's following me. Yeah. Uh, that's something that if I click on there, I'm going somewhere dark. But how do you know, other than some hugely buxom girl not wearing much in her picture, that it's not a real person? Well, that's one way uh, to do it. Two,
3: you look at the bio. You see if people have put in a link. That's, that's another thing, and you can click on the link. But a lot of times, if you look at the number of followers they have or how many they're following or how many tweets they have, something will be off. So if someone or something follows me, and has 50,000 followers and is following another 60,000 people, but is only tweeted a thousand times. If that person isn't a celebrity, you think to yourself, why would all these people be subscribing to that account? And so that's one way. And the other thing is there are some accounts that just say, they follow you, and they follow you and they say buy Twitter. You know, their header photo says buy Twitter. Twitter followers. I mean, they're pretty blatant about
0: it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Chatting with digital and social media expert Martin Waxman about the idea of buying Twitter followers... And, Martin, we were talking just before the break about the idea of somehow whether this could be monetized. Now, if you get enough YouTube views, for example, a video, you can monetize that and make money. There are people making decent money, good money, really good money on YouTube right now. I I, I just don't understand. Is there a way to do the same with Twitter?
3: There is, and it it has to do with influencers or micro-influencers working with brands. And, you know, as as we all know, media has had a really tough time in the last few years competing with social media because platforms like Facebook, uh, certainly in YouTube and and Twitter, have been grabbing the audience away. And then, you know, distributing news, not paying people. So how do organizations reach their audiences? They work with micro-influencers or influential people like celebrities who have big followings, and they pay them to tweet on behalf of their organization or brand. And so you can get, you know, 500 bucks, 1,000, 10,000 or more for one tweet, depending on who you are, if you're a big celebrity or how many followers you are. So that, there's an incentive for some people to boost that following because they could say, hey, look at how many people um, are subscribing to me. You should pay me more for my tweets.
1: The flip side, of course, and that's fascinating. The flip side, of course, is just the ego side, as you alluded to off the top. And what really puzzles me about this, what made me shake my head, I guess, is the concept that if someone has a lot of Twitter followers, someone else is going to want to follow them just because they have a lot of Twitter followers. I just can't believe we are that sheep-like as people that we would say, oh, he—he, he, a lot of people follow him. I got to be one of them.
3: Yeah, and shallow, really. Because- well, yeah. You know, it, it's about, uh, for me, it's always been about what people say. And it's not really who who follows me. For me, it's more who I follow. It's also the conversations and the links that you see. And that's what makes it interesting to me. I've always thought of Twitter as a news feed. But in that New York Times article, they talk about someone who is actually on the board of Twitter <laughs> who bought followers. And I... If I was a CEO, I'd go, okay, you know, maybe we need to talk about how long you're continuing because it it, it doesn't send a great message. Or CNN commentators that bought followers or comedians who bought followers. It just...
1: Well, it's a complete credibility destroyer, isn't it, if you're caught? Yes,
3: absolutely. And uh, it says, hey, you know... The outside, you know what what's external or showing stuff is more important to me than more important to me than actually, you know, having a relationship with people.
1: It, I mean, yeah, it destroys your credibility. That'll be the first thing. But I gotta tell you, if I was ever busted for this, and anyone who wants to go and look at my Twitter, you'll see how many people are following me. I haven't bought any. Um, I would be so embarrassed if someone ever found out that I had been buying Twitter followers because it looks absolutely desperate and pathetic.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And yet, for some people, they just don't care because they would rather have those big numbers and assume they're not going to get caught and take that chance.
1: Do you have any idea and I know you haven't bought any, but do you have any idea what it would cost? I have no idea what it would cost to buy followers.
3: Apparently, uh, from the New York Times article, it said something like between a penny or two cents, depending on the quality of those fakes. So if it is data scraped, from an actual account. It doesn't have a lot of people following them, but there's a picture of a real person and a bio, and it looks kind of real. That is more expensive. So that, that might be on the two cent range versus something that is just a bot and doesn't have a, really a picture there or anything it's, it, or, or has gibberish for the uh, bio. You know, that's less worth less. Do you have, and do I think that's a key worth less.
1: Yeah. Well, the whole thing is just so silly, but it is going on. I what I don't know, and again, I don't know if you know this, how commonplace do you believe this would actually be? How many people are doing this? Do you think it's a lot?
3: I think it's probably more than uh, I would have thought before, you know, that this, this came out. Because there were always people the notes that you'd see are or spam emails about buying followers. It seems like, you know, seeing, again, from the New York Times article, reading about people who have kind of a high profile and who were buying them, that that shocked me. Or that there were some agencies, whether they were digital agencies or PR agencies, buying them for their clients. That, that's not a good sign because it says that these are inherently not great, these organizations don't have ethics, or these people don't have ethics, and they would rather appear to be something they are not than, you know, be transparent about who they are. So how do you build trust, how, you know, if you know the person is like that?
1: Well, and if I saw the numbers right, and unfortunately we're out of time, if I saw the numbers right, I saw that same New York Times article, I think they said that 200 million of these have been sold in the last little while. That That's not a... That's a lot of identities that are floating around out there that aren't real.
3: It is. And so be careful with your own accounts. Make sure that you've got your privacy settings set to where you want them to be. That still doesn't stop people from scraping your account. But if you notice that reported to Twitter and they we apparently will remove those accounts. So that's one small thing we can do.
1: Martin Waxman, digital and social media expert. uh, Martin Waxman Communications, if you want to look up his website. I really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this.
3: Thanks a lot, Scott.
1: Never had a clue. Never had a clue that you could do that. Don't plan on it. If you are someone who actually feels that for your ego to be satisfied, you need to have a higher number of Twitter followers so you would go and pay money to do that, kind of feel sad for you i I really do that is a shallow kind of pathetic thing but i'm sure there is somebody listening who has done it i just feel sad for you
0: you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 chml
1: i gotta tell you i i laughed when i saw this and i don't know if i should laugh i don't know if it's actually funny or if it's kind of frightening Nonetheless, I I laughed the first time I read it and I've laughed every time I've read it since because it's just so ludicrous. You know who Elon Musk is, correct? Elon Musk is the guy behind the Tesla vehicles, behind the giant batteries that are supposed to store up the energy so your house can run now without all the electric, whether if the power goes out or whatever else, he's behind the reusable spaceships that are going off. He is, be, I mean, he's behind all this kind of stuff, the self-driving cars, on and on and on. Elon Musk is kind of the Steve Jobs of today, sort of. That's how some people have described him. Anyway, got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies. His companies are doing a lot of different things. He makes a lot of money. He's got a lot of money. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I wonder where all this money comes from. Well, I found out one of those places today. He owns a company, ironically, because I think it's sort of oxymoronic, uh, a company called The Boring Company, for what that's worth. I don't know why you call it that. Anyway, they have a product. The Boring Company has a product that is out on the market. It's been out for one week and has sold 17,000 units in the week that it has been available. What is this special, exciting remarkable product that everybody needs to get their hands on now that they're getting 17,000 buys in the first week and I guarantee you a lot more now that people know that it's actually out. What would be this product? Something really important and usable for your life presumably, correct? What are you selling that is flying off the shelves is a Flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> as in like a Vietnam War flamethrower. I don't know who all needs a flamethrower in their life. I'm not really sure where, I mean, I suppose if you're trying to light your bonfire, this could be helpful or get the barbecue going. If you have a an elderly person in your family who's got a birthday coming up and you want to light the candles quickly, that might be one way to do it. If you need to I don't know what else it would be used for, although one of the best possibilities was uh, put out there that it could be used for agricultural purposes, I suppose, if you need to clear-cut a field somehow and you don't want to use a scythe or drive your combine over. Just <laughs> oh, there goes the field. You hope you don't take out your neighbor's whole barn too. But anyway, uh, but the other one... <laughs> It could be used to melt ice or snow. And I just have this image of people in Cleveland because I don't know if it's available in Canada yet. But someone in Cleveland or Buffalo and their car is covered in snow pulling out the (laughs) flamethrower. I I don't know if it's going to go well for the car. Uh, That that may be a small problem. You get the snow melted but all the paint has also been dissolved. But 17,000 people, so far, 10,000 in just two days. But 17,000 people have bought a portable, well, they're all portable, a portable flamethrower. It looks like a gun. You know what a flamethrower looks like. Now, it doesn't look like exactly like the Vietnam War flamethrowers because they, as I recall, had a big tank of some sort of gas or accelerant or something. And it came through a tube and you had this giant hose and it sprayed it like 50 feet. This is a little bit lower key than that. It looks almost like a bit of a giant water gun because it's got everything in the gun, but it looks like a gun. Uh, It doesn't apparently fall into gun definition because no projectile leaves the barrel unless you count a 10-foot spray of fire as a projectile. But... This one just catches me off guard. Of all the things that Elon Musk and his people are creating and coming up with, and they're sitting in the office, and they're saying, okay, what are we going to invent today? What are we going to create today that's going to change the world? Okay, we've got the self-driving car. That's good. We've got the battery car. That's great. We've got batteries that will power your house for hours upon hours upon hours and save you having to use electricity in peak times. Oh, that's a really good one. Yeah, that's good. We've got... Super solar-powered roof units to collect that. Oh, that's a good one. What else can we do? Oh, we got spaceships. Oh, yeah. Re- reusable, recyclable spaceships that can go to up to space and then land and come down and land vertically. That's really cool. What are we missing? What is really missing from the catalog? I know, a flamethrower. What are we going to do? What, what are people going to use it for? I don't know. I don't care. It's a flamethrower. That's the coolest thing ever. And all I can picture now is somewhere in the Ozarks, some dad giving his son his first flamethrower for his ninth birthday, saying, don't point it at your sister. I just, it, what a strange thing to have on the market in 2018, a flamethrower. I'm I'm thinking that when they remake... What was the story? A Christmas story with the BB gun. When they remake that someday down the road, it won't be a BB gun. It will be a flamethrower that mom does not want you to have. Not because it's going to take out your eye, because it's going to burn down the entire neighborhood. You know, it's a different time for a different thing, but you can look it up, by the way. The Boring Company, just like it sounds boring, is it not interesting? The Boring Company, flamethrowers, I don't know how much they cost, but... um, If you buy one, please bring one in, bring it to the studio. We want to try it here while we're, without hopefully burning the whole studio down. We'll try.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML.
1: I didn't watch the Grammy Awards, but I did check in on the Grammy Awards. I did watch some of the highlights. I did read the stories about it. And there was a huge push on this year for me too, to wear white flowers, to be fighting for equality, to be fighting for women, to be respected, to be fighting for women, not to have to face sexual harassment and sexual assault. And is there a person alive, honestly, at this point, who's not going to argue that those are good things we can quibble and we should quibble perhaps about some of the ways that the me too thing is happening, because I do have concerns about the fact that there are a lot of men in this now who have no way to defend themselves, but that's a quibble about specifics. The idea of women being protected, the idea of women being treated properly, the idea of women being treated with respect and not being treated as chattel and meat. Those are, those are good things that I think all of us, I would hope all of us would be in favor of. So the concept of a bunch of musicians Getting together and pushing for that is a good thing. Trouble is, I can't bring myself to believe that the people who are the ones who are doing this are people who really have any platform or any pedestal or any reason to be the ones telling us, the rest of the unwashed general public, how to live. Because I got to tell you, when you look at who... Are so many of the people who have been honored by the Grammys either this year, last year, who were nominees, who are winners, and you look at how they speak about women, how they treat women, how they have acted towards women, even as some of the women, the the messages that they're giving off, I find it so hard to take what they say without being just turned inside out almost by trying to figure out how they. Can tell us how we should behave. Let me give you some examples and I'm not going to be able. Here's the, here's the tricky part about this. I can't actually here. Here's how rough it is. I can't actually read you or quote for you most of the lyrics because I would immediately be kicked off the air. The CRTC would have a hearing and there would be no more 900 CHML if I started reading these lyrics. I'm not being funny. I'm not being over the top. Some of what is being offered is so filthy that there's no possible way that I could read it on the air. Let me give you some examples. There was a guy who was nominated for for a number of awards, Kendrick Lamar. Many of you are going to know the name. Some of you won't have a clue about the name. Again, I can't actually read for you some of the more obvious, more over-the-top, more unpleasant, maybe unpleasant? I don't know if I guess unpleasant. More just blatantly sexist lyrics that he offered up. I can't do it for you. I wish I could only to illustrate the point. But I'm looking at a list in front of me of different songs and different lyrics. And, you know, if you're going to have a Grammy Awards and you're going to say we are all about equality and treating women with respect and not treating women as sexual objects, and you nominate this guy with the lyrics that he's offering up, you can't, Make the case. You cannot make the case that you are serious about this. It is absolutely impossible. There's another guy who was nominated. Best rap album. Guy named Tyler the Creator. Now, some of you are going to know Tyler the Creator. Some of you will have kids or grandkids who will know Tyler the Creator. If I couldn't read you any of Kendrick Lamar's lyrics, well, there's no hope in the world I can read you Tyler the Creator's lyrics. If you are really adventurous, if you really, really want to know what I'm talking about and you're not at work so that the IT department is not going to come up and look at your computer and find out what you're looking at, um, the song is called Tron Cat, T-R-O-N, Tron, like the movie, the old Disney movie, Tron, Tron Cat. Um, it's, It's got some problems in it. It's got some serious problems in it as far as being able to turn around and argue that we as the folks at the Grammy Awards are very concerned and very supportive of women when we talk about chopping her legs off that that's one of the parts that I can actually say although it's certainly I'm looking through this thing there are so much there's so much in here I got to be careful um yeah there's it's Let me go on. There's no point in me even spending any time on this because there's really nothing in here that I can read for you. Another one by a guy named Rocco. Put Molly all in her champagne. She ain't even know it. I took her home and enjoyed that. She ain't even know it. It's a song about drugging her drink and while she's unconscious, raping her. How exactly as a Grammy award, as a music industry, do you honor and recognize and celebrate a guy who sings that and then say, we're all about looking after women and honoring women and respecting women? I don't need to probably tell you much about Kanye West uh, if you're really, again, Needing to know what's going on. Go look up the song. I'm in it. I don't, I'm not going to tell you what. Anyway, it's just, so here's the problem with this. Okay. Beyond the obvious problem with this. Oh, before I get to that, just there are also then you say, okay, well, those are guys. Those are, yeah, those are guys and they are singing lyrics that are just completely unhelpful, completely missing the point, completely out of line. That's my case. That that would be the position I would take. Completely out of line. But women are not doing stuff like that, right? Well, are they? Are they? So Kesha at the Grammy Awards apparently gave what was described as a very emotional performance of a song about being harassed or assaulted or I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but it was to do with her something that she claims she says happened to her. And it was apparently very moving and people were crying and it was all very much the highlight of this. We are honoring women at this award show that is also honoring a bunch of guys who are clearly doing the opposite with their lyrics. Anyway, she's got a song here that she talks about. There's a place downtown where the freaks all come around. It's a hole in the wall. It's a dirty free-for-all. And they turn me on when they take it off. When they take it off, everyone take it off. There's a place I know if you're looking for a show where they go hardcore and there's glitter on the floor, blah, blah, blah. She goes on and on and on. Point of this is there are women also who by their actions are not, you're allowed, they're allowed to do what they want. This is not a question where we're saying you may not, that we as misogynist men are telling you how to behave, how to dress, whatever else. Where this becomes so difficult, and this is the point of this whole thing. We are in the middle right now of a time in our society when there are many men who are being called on the carpet and exposed for misbehaviors, for treating women badly, for treating women like objects, for treating women like meat, for treating women in ways that they shouldn't be treated. But where, in some cases, where do these ideas come from? And it's not an excuse, but let's be honest about one thing. If you are a 14 or 13 or 15 year old teenage boy or teenage girl for that matter, but teenage boy specifically, and you spend, and the New York times did a piece a while back that did a study and found that most teenagers in North America are spending roughly two and a half hours a day listening to their music. You're spending two and a half hours a day being exposed in many cases to songs, to artists, to performances, that tell you this stuff. And then you tune into an award show or something else, and you've got Miley Cyrus twerking and grinding and whatever. And I'm not trying to be a prude. Again, that's entirely Miley Cyrus's determination or decision if she wants to do this. And you've got Kesha in most of her videos, the one who is up there now singing about stuff that is making the case, but in her videos So much, almost entirely, well, not entirely, that's too much of a statement. So much of it, of the music industry, is so heavily sexualized. So you're now a 13, a 14, a 15-year-old teenage boy who is exposed day after day after day to this. And your mom or your dad tells you how you're supposed to treat women. But you're like, come on. Yeah, I get it, mom. I get it. But you listen then to your heroes and they're telling you a completely different story. They are telling you a completely different story about how women should be treated, want to be treated. I won't use the word deserve to be treated, but some might say that. That that's the message that's being sent. How do you think some of these ideas and some of these misbehaviors gain some traction and gain some ground? That if, if you can make an argument that the number one societal pressure point for a lot of teenage boys and teenage girls is the music they listen to. I think that's a completely fair statement to have. These are the heroes. These are the people that are preaching to them. And you're hearing this stuff. You think, is it somehow a surprise that we have confusion? I didn't even mention. Now, this is a whole other topic because we've had this discussion before there are different points of view on this. I didn't even mention the number of times the n-word is used in all these lyrics in many of them. But we are absolutely confusing kids. Now if you're a if you're a 30-year-old adult if you're a 40-year-old grown man and you're listening to this music, you should not be confused. You're, you're, you no longer have an excuse. You are beyond an excuse when that time has come. But if you're a 15 or a 14 or a 13 or a 16-year-old teenage boy who is exposed to this time after time after time, and the message that is being sent to you by the guys who are singing is that women are objects, women are there for you to do this to, and the women who are performing Many of them are sending the message that actually, yeah, you know what? That's kind of what we're all about. Is it, does it not make some logical sense that kids are going to be confused and kids are going to get wrong ideas? Not all kids, not every one of them, but enough of them, which all brings me back to this point about how then do you host a Grammy Awards? How then do you have an award show in this particular industry honoring the very people in many cases, in some cases, that are the ones leading this confusion? How do you then have an award show and try to make it about the fact that we treat women right, that we treat women with respect, that we don't treat women as just objects you can't do it it's the most to watch this and to see the clips and then to go and look at the lyrics it is the most hypocritical thing you can do the grammy awards were an absolute exercise in hypocrisy because the music industry doesn't do what it then when it comes to awards time says it does I, I, As I say, when I saw the stories that were explaining how all the things, all the actions that were done, the white flowers and all this to treat women with respect, to treat women right. And then you look at the honorees this year, last year, the year before, for as long as you want to go back, it doesn't jibe. It doesn't add up. You either do or you don't, you don't treat women right music industry one night a year and the rest of the time pretend that it's all fair game. You can't then sell that. Anybody who was watching this that actually was watching these awards and saying, man, those music industry people, boy, they're doing good things. Go look at the lyrics. I'm sorry. Go look at the lyrics. And I am not, believe me, I am not an old prudish guy who goes everything in music is evil and bad no that's not the case at all but if you're going to have an award show that is arguing for this probably the people you're honoring shouldn't be the same people who are causing part of the problem that's all i'm saying If you're going to have an award show or some event, and you're going to tell people, this is what we are all about, probably prune out the ones who, when you then listen to their music an hour after the show is over, you don't go, huh? Well, that's an interesting conundrum. Or watch their performances and go, huh? I thought they just said that women work to be treated as objects, but then what about that? I don't think it's—honestly, I I I don't think it's too much to suggest that perhaps if we're asking every other part of society to act differently and act more responsibly and act better towards women, I don't think it's too much to suggest that perhaps it should happen here too because there are kids— who will listen to this, who become, compl- I-, I am convinced, who listen to this and are confused by this and the lessons they learn because they do learn, don't for a second think you don't learn lessons from music or you don't pick up stuff from music or you don't get behavioral guidance from the entertainment industry. You absolutely do. And I know after this whole thing that I just sound old and foggy and puritanical and that's not what this is. If you think that that's what it is, Go look at the lyrics that I'm talking about, all right? We're not talking about Elvis singing back in the 50s with the lyrics that he used. Go look up some of these lyrics and then tell me that I'm being oversensitive or that I'm being too puritanical. And if you're still not sure, here's what I would suggest. As a little test, go find the song Tron Cat by Tyler, the creator. And then call up your grandmother and say, I'd like to read you something and see how long you can keep reading these lyrics until you go, oh, grandma, I got to stop. <laughs> I can't. There's no way. Or go try and do this to someone in polite company and say, I'd like to just read you a poem and see how, I'm sorry. I just, the idea that somehow the music industry especially is preaching to us about how to behave It's a little rich. It is a little rich. And just in case he gets any ideas, Ben, please do not play that song on the way out of this uh, spot, or else both of us will be looking for work in the morning.
0: The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from six to eight on nine hundred CHML.